Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. If you spend any time in China, you know that the discrimination against Uyghurs is deep-seated. And here was an instance in which people all over the country were holding candlelight vigils for Uyghurs and identifying with them, right? Suddenly, you know, there was all this doubt, like you said at the beginning, it's hard to believe what was happening in Xinjiang. Most Chinese people didn't believe, but now they do. A lot of them do. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. At this point, most people have heard of the terrible nightmare afflicting the Uyghur people. But it's not simply the repression of an ethnic minority that has shocked the world. Rather, it's the extent that technology has turned their home into a futuristic dystopia. Uyghurs are closely surveilled nearly everywhere. It's difficult to imagine, and it's hard to properly explain. So I reached out to Josh Chen. He is the Deputy Bureau Chief for China at the Wall Street Journal and the co-author with Lisa Lin of the book Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. My conversation with Josh begins with Xinjiang and the Uyghur people, but it moves on to how surveillance has become an everyday part of life throughout China. Widespread surveillance is not just a tool for the CCP. It's become an aspiration. It is an ambition to shape society through technology. But this isn't just a conversation about China. Many of these surveillance technologies are already used in democracies, including the United States. Josh argues we need to think about new privacy laws to protect against abuses from these technologies. So my question for listeners this week is what should digital privacy laws protect against? Listeners on the Spotify app can simply reply to this week's question. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, though, you can leave your response as a review or you can always respond to the show on Twitter or Facebook. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. But for now, here is my conversation with Josh Chin. Josh Chin, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Josh, your book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, is really one of the books everybody's talking about. When they're studying China, when they're asking questions about China, it's really a phenomenal book that you've written with Lisa Lin. And one of the themes that it touches on is the Uyghurs and the surveillance state specifically in Xinjiang. And I want to ask you about that because that part of China sounds so dystopian. And it sounds so dystopian that I don't even know how much to believe of what I've heard. But you've been there. Can you describe what it's like to be in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, as many Uyghurs call it? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny that you put it that way, because um, when I came back and told people what I'd seen there, 
a lot of people didn't believe it either. I actually had a Chinese colleague who for years didn't believe our own reporting. And then she went on a vacation there and came back and she was like, oh my God, you're right. It's true. But you know, it is sort of hard to believe. And I can tell you when I first got there, it was shocking. At that point, I'd been reporting in China for more than 10 years. Um, I'd been all over the country, reported all kinds of stories. I just never been surprised or shocked actually by something the way I was when I went to Xinjiang. It was like entering a dystopian novel. We, I went in with a colleague in late 2017 when this campaign that the Communist Party was rolling out there targeting the Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim minorities was really cranking up. And it was like being dropped into a sort of high-tech war zone, kind of counterinsurgency operation. As soon as you cross the border into Xinjiang from neighboring regions, you have guys you know, in SWAT gear carrying assault rifles kind of swarming everywhere. You had checkpoints every five or 10 miles on the highway, every few blocks in the cities. And you know, there's cameras everywhere, microphones everywhere. And you just had this feeling of kind of intense suffocation to being there. And this is as a foreigner who's relatively protected, right? So I can only imagine what it's like for a Uyghur. I mean, the one one experience we had that when we were reporting that I remember particularly vividly was at one point we had a rental car and we were driving around. We were lost. We were in the countryside. We were trying to find our way back to a highway in the middle of nowhere, nothing around. Can't see anyone. And all of a sudden we're surrounded by a cloud of dust and the dust clears. We come to a stop and there's a police car in front of us, police car in back of us. You know, guys get out there in SWAT gear. They surround us with guns. They tell us to get out of the car interrogate us for a while. We managed to talk our way out of it, sort of pretending to be, you know, lost economics reporters, you know. Uh, but as they were letting us go, I asked one of the cops, I was like, how do you even find us? Like, there's no one around. He's like, oh, we have a camera back there that spotted your license plate and sent us an alert. And that's how we knew you were here. That was just an early personal introduction to what it's like to be in Xinjiang. But if you're a Uyghur, it's much more intense, right? Because essentially you're being tracked everywhere you go all the time. And, you know, I mean, just as an example, you leave your house, you know, you scan in and out of your residential compound with your ID card. Um, if you go to a bank or a market, a convenience store, any public place, you would go through a security gate, scan your card, which would also scan your face to kind of match it up. There were police on the sidewalks who could wave you over, demand that you hand over your smartphone and they plug it into a scanner that would scan your phone for sort of digital contraband, right? And this could be anything from, you know, actual sort of terrorist material, which is extremely rare, down to VPN software that you might use to get around censorship, or even photos of Turkish movie stars who are seen as being too kind of Turkish nationalists for the Chinese government's tastes. And so it's just unlike anything I think I've ever seen or imagined seeing in real life. And of course, in the background of all of this were these internment camps where Uyghurs who were sort of through this processes of surveillance and evaluation of their behavioral data deemed to be a threat to the Communist Party, they were sent to these camps to be re-educated. And this was this sort of threat that hung over everyone. You could sense the fear in almost every Uyghur you talk to, that this was kind of constantly in the back of their minds. Have you been to one of the internment camps? Have you seen it up close? Yeah, actually, I think my reporting partner at the time, and I might have been the first Western journalist to film uh, one of these camps. Before we went there on this reporting trip, a, a scholar of Xinjiang had pointed us to this one location kind of outside of Kashgar, which is a big, famous Silk Road Oasis city uh, in the western part of Xinjiang, near the border with Central Asia. It was like in a field, and we were like, there's probably nothing there, but we'll just go check it out. Uh, and we got there, and it was, you know, we were imagining like a small, you know, kind of like a school-sized 
facility because actually the Chinese government had sort of been euphemistically referring to these places as schools. And when they would send Uyghurs there, they'd be sending them there for education, supposedly. And so we were thinking, oh, you know, maybe something like a, the size of a, like an elementary school or something. And when we got there, we, I remember driving down this country road and it was just this humongous, basically, prison that just kind of popped out of nowhere. It was nighttime and it was all lit up. There were sort of, you know, searchlights everywhere. A group of what looked like Uyghur family members sort of huddling across from the entrance. And the entrance was being guarded by these guys, with again, with assault rifles. And uh, we walked up to it to try to figure out what it was. And there was a guy, we asked, he's like, it's, it's school. And we were like, I've never seen a school like this. What do they teach in there? And he basically said, you know, for your own safety, you should stop asking these questions and leave. We had a Uyghur taxi driver with us. And so we felt like we didn't want to put him in risk. So we did decide to leave. But it was a really, really striking experience. And it definitely did make it clear that what was going on was not vocational education the way the government had said it was. So you saw one of the internment camps from afar early on. When did you actually learn what was happening inside of them from Uyghurs who actually had personal reports of the experiences that they had? Right. So that was, I mean, that was a big mystery. I mean, for a long time, we couldn't figure out what was going on in these camps. I mean, we sort of had a vague notion. There were a lot of rumors. We were sort of trying to piece things together. You know, it was uh, another reporter in Beijing, a friend of mine who worked for Agence France Press, AFP, had been looking at procurement documents and he sort of figured out this list of things that they were ordering, which was like tasers and cattle prods and handcuffs and, you know, the sort of stuff that a school would never order. Um, and so we kind of had, you know, through that sort of detail and rumors, we had this kind of vague notion. But then the following year in 2018, you started to have a few Kazakhs, sort of ethnic Kazakhs who'd been sent to the camps and then let out. I think partially through the lobbying of the Kazakh government in Kazakhstan, which borders Xinjiang. Um, and these people had been let out and they'd gone across the border. They'd sort of snuck across the border to safety. And once they got to Kazakhstan, they felt free to talk about what they had gone through. And so, you know, it was through them, we started to learn that what was happening and what was happening was, I mean, I think a lot of people had the worst fears, right? You see internment camps, you think, obviously, the first thing you think is a Holocaust. And it wasn't actually exactly that. It was something sort of new. And what was difficult about Xinjiang is that it was unusual and something we didn't really have a framework for thinking about. But essentially, it was, you know, a 21st century form of brainwashing, right? Where they were taking Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim, Kazakhs, Uzbeks, and, you know, subjecting them to language training, Mandarin, that sort of thing, but then just political indoctrination. So they would sit through hours and hours of classes about Xi Jinping and studying Xi Jinping thought, you know, the leader of China's thought, um, and pledging allegiance to the party and denouncing Islam. And, you know, if they didn't do it to the satisfaction of teachers and prison guards and other authorities in the camps, they would be punished, be forced to squat, they would have their heads shaved, they'd be denied food, they'd be beaten in some cases. And then later on, we did get reports of rape happening. There were rumors that people were being force-fed pork, you know, obviously, which for a Muslim is, you know, a taboo. You know, a lot of the stuff, it's still based on kind of personal testimony when we haven't been able to get into the camps, obviously, to verify it. But the testimony was really consistent over time. It was the same people coming out, telling very similar stories. Uh, one of the more disturbing things we heard about is women being fed medications and then stopped menstruation which is when we started to realize there was not exactly ethnic cleansing, but ethnic re-engineering sort of effort going on where they were trying to control births among Uyghurs and then also reorganize their identity, right, their cultural identity, and sort of make them more Chinese. And that's still underway. It's evolved a little bit over time, but it's still basically ongoing. Something I found fascinating in your book was this 
idea of social engineering that they're practicing in Xinjiang dates back to an engineer who was actually deported from the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about him and why this deportation was so important? He's definitely one of the more fascinating figures in this story. His name is Chen Xuesen. He's a missile scientist, an engineer, mathematician who came to the United States on a scholarship, was initially studying at MIT and then moved to Caltech, where he sort of established himself very quickly as a brilliant engineer and mathematician and became very involved, actually, in the creation of the American rocket and missile program, especially after World War II. He was sort of named the first director of a very famous jet propulsion lab in California. And uh, around the 1950s, he, like a lot of other people, came under suspicion in the McCarthy era. The FBI investigated him, accused him of being a member of the Communist Party. It turns out he probably had been a member of the Communist Party when he was in college, but that actually isn't all that unusual for that time, right? So anyway, he was sort of persecuted during the McCarthy era and was put under surveillance in his home in Los Angeles for, I think, more than a year. During that time, he became really interested in this new field of study invented by mostly American scientists and mathematicians called cybernetics. You know, cybernetics is where we get cyberspace from, cybersecurity, all those cyber words comes from this field, right? And it's essentially the field of how information is used for control in that sort of broad sense. And that includes like in the biological sense, in the engineering sense, in the social sense, right? It's just the ways that information is used to control an environment or to control, you know, an entity or a system. And he got really into this, mostly from an engineering standpoint. He thought it could be used to solve problems in engineering. So he wrote his own book based on that, which was really well received, considered as a sort of a major breakthrough in engineering. And right around that time, he decided that he was done with the U.S. He was angry at the persecution. He saw that there was new things happening in China. The Chinese government obviously wanted him back. And he was ultimately traded for a bunch of United States airmen who'd been captured in China during the Korean War and basically went back to China. And when he got to China, he created China's missile program and its space program or basically helped sort of midwife those programs. And then later on in his career, he started to apply his engineering principles, this idea of cybernetics and using information as a means of control to society. And he came up with this theory that if you kind of had enough data and the right tools combined with the right knowledge, you could sort of engineer society the same way you engineer a missile, the same way you engineer any sort of mechanical system. And this was something that the original cybernetics thinkers in the U.S. had sort of resisted this idea because they felt like you can't get good enough data to responsibly try something like that. Um, and there actually had been experiments in the U.S. in California in the 60s of trying to do some social programs based on these ideas, and they'd all sort of ended up failures. But he didn't care about that, or he wasn't aware of that, and he kind of pushed forward. And this idea became really influential uh, in the Communist Party. It was taught in the Central Party School, which is the main training academy for senior party officials in Beijing. And what we're seeing now in China is basically that vision coming to life. It feels like for him, these ideas of cybernetics were more than just engineering principles. I mean, it was almost like ethical principles, the idea that this is the right way for society to govern, that this is the way that we not just can do things, but really should be doing things. And I think it gets back to the title of your book, which is Surveillance State, because it starts to describe China as being not just a state that has surveillance, but that 
surveillance is really one of its guiding principles. It's almost like part of its philosophy at this point of its governance. Like at one point it was a communist state and today it feels as if it's a surveillance state. Is that how you feel when you titled the book this way? Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think China is the first major state, maybe any state that we've seen that is that has self-consciously made surveillance a part of its governance model. If you could step back, I mean, surveillance is a part of every state, you know, and, and since states can't really function without collecting data on the people they're governing, right? If you want to levy taxes or you want to distribute welfare, you've got to know how much money people have or don't have. If you want to raise an army, you need to know which families have young men in them that you can draft into your military, right? So, I mean, this goes all the way back to ancient Rome. But where China is unique is that it really has made the collection and analysis of that information on a mass scale, a core part of how it envisions society and its job of managing society. And this isn't a totally new idea, right? I mean, you had in the 20th century, all the totalitarian leaders of that era dreamed, they fantasized about scientifically managed societies. The Third Reich, that was part of what they were aiming for, right? They had an idea in their mind that they thought was scientific about what the perfect society was, and they were trying to bring it about. They weren't able to for a variety of reasons, but one of them, which is technological. The ability to collect information and analyze it didn't exist on a sufficient scale back then. And the Communist Party now in China believes that it does, you know, partly thanks to Silicon Valley companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook. We now have the tools to harvest huge amounts of data about human behavior, just massive, massive amounts would be unimaginable to people, you know, 20, 30 years ago, much less 100 years ago. And we also have really sophisticated ways of analyzing that data and using it to make predictions. Uh, and so the Communist Party sees this as a really game changing development for managing people and societies, and then they're trying to make the most of them. Is that a philosophy just of party leaders and maybe political elites? Or do everyday citizens in China understand that's what's going on and actually buy into that philosophy to, I don't know, any extent? It's hard to say how many regular people in China really think about it in those terms. And even in the Communist Party, right, I think it's a very high level notion, right? And it is, you know, it's the sort of thing that party scholars write about and party scholars teach to the most senior level officials, right? And then the senior level officials think about it and how to operationalize it. At the lower levels in China, the thinking is more just in terms of, you know, ideas like security and convenience, you know, these sort of services, right, that states are supposed to deliver. And I think most Chinese people, or most of the Chinese people we talk to, you know, especially in the early part of doing the research of this book, you know, to the extent they thought about it, they were just like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I mean, it makes our lives better and, you know, makes us safer or it makes our lives easier. And as long as you're not, you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have to worry about the negative consequences of it. So it's great. We love it. And even into the early part of the pandemic, actually, you saw when China was controlling the virus, you know, that conviction sort of grew more. I mean, there was much more awareness of these technologies and of that data collection because it was just such a core part of how China controlled the pandemic. So people were thinking about it actively, but their conclusion was it's keeping us safe. So awareness of it has grown over time. The attitudes have changed and it's changed a lot recently with the way the pandemic ended. But even so, I mean, I think a lot of Chinese people, they think about it in terms of how it impacts their daily lives in a sort of very pragmatic way. Yeah, even before the pandemic even began, people in China, though, seemed to have limits to the amount of privacy that they were willing to give up. You mentioned a few cases in your book 
where you had companies that would stream surveillance cameras from different facilities and people in China got really angry about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe other ways that people in China think about privacy? Yeah. So the notion of privacy in China or the degree to which people in China embrace privacy is probably one of the more fascinating and dynamic and tricky topics that we tackled. At the beginning of the book, most of the people we talked to, they just, they didn't really think about it that much. But you know, as we dug into it more, we realized, especially in the cities, in bigger cities where you had sort of more educated people, you had people who had experience, maybe studied abroad in the US or the UK or Australia, there was a sense of privacy and of there were these incidents in which people got really angry at privacy violations. The case you referenced, which is really fascinating, is there was a security technology company that had come out with these cheap internet-connected surveillance cameras that people have in their homes, right? Sort of like baby cams or whatever, like along those lines. And these cameras sort of connected automatically to a cloud service. And the idea being, obviously, anyone who has one of these cameras, you can check it remotely, even if you're not at home, through the cloud. The difference was that usually those connections are private, they're password protected. In this case, the company made it very easy for people to put these streams up publicly. And I think a lot of cases, they didn't even realize they were being streamed publicly. So you had this website that was essentially live streaming 24 hours a day, security footage from inside people's homes, from like yoga studios, zoos, wig shops, you know, like just everywhere. It was just this wild, like 24 hour camera studio of the entire country. And it kind of went unnoticed for a long time. Until one day there was a young woman who stumbled on it and was just appalled because, you know, in in some cases there were like videos of young children dancing and that sort of thing, right? Where it's just like, you know, you look at it, you're like, it's creepy as hell. And so she exposed it in a blog post that went viral. And basically that website, I think within a couple of weeks was shut down uh, along with a bunch of others that had sort of mimicked it. And that's just one example. So there were several sort of privacy moments for China, where it was clear that people were thinking about that. But the key difference is, if you're comparing it to sort of the way Americans think about privacy, for example, is that almost all of that vitriol, all of that anger was focused on companies. It was focused on search engines. It was focused on social media companies, on these video companies. It almost never touched on the government, right? Which in some ways is the exact opposite of the US for a long time. For a long time in the US, all the concern was about government collection of data, right? No one really cared about what Google or Facebook or Amazon was collecting, right? People just weren't aware of it. Or if they were, they were like, oh, it's worth the trade-off, but we just don't want the government collecting our data. So China was the opposite. It was the government's going to collect their stuff, but we were really angry about these companies. You know, so there is definitely a privacy consciousness in China and it's growing. It is growing over time. And I think that is one of the really interesting developments that the government is sort of constantly struggling to deal with. Hasn't the government actually encouraged some of that vitriol against private companies as well? Like when people get frustrated and they start expressing themselves on some of the Chinese social media, that rather than censoring those comments, the Chinese government actually amplifies them? Yeah, you know, I mean, this was actually a really, I think, I have to say, pretty impressive piece of political jujitsu that the Communist Party pulled off, right? Because they saw you know, as these controversies kept piling up, I think they realized it was going to be a problem. And, and, you know, normally what the government does when something like this happens, they just crush it, right? They have the world's most sophisticated censorship apparatus and they just wipe it out. Those of us who were in China at the time when this was first starting were kind of really shocked that that wasn't happening. And, And not only was it not happening, but the government was encouraging it. You know, state media would pile on. They would come in and they'd be like, oh, look at these terrible companies and what they're doing with data. It's awful. You know, and then they came out with a few years later, what is on paper, you know, one of the world's most or one of the world's strictest personal information protection laws. You know, it's basically probably second only to Europe. 
And so if you look at this on the surface, you're like, what is going on? And I think what we discovered is they very cleverly redefined privacy, which is they made privacy only about the private sphere, not the public sphere. So they created this idea that personal information should be protected from companies and the way that companies and private interests use data, that needs to be very, very heavily regulated. But that for security reasons, the government should have access to that data. And, you know, this is not a totally alien idea to Americans, right? I mean, anyone who was alive during 9-11 and remembers the Patriot Act, that is essentially the argument that the US government made at the start of the war on terror was, yes, privacy is important, but security is more important. So, you know, we're going to need to temporarily, supposedly, take the liberty of accessing Americans' data in order to keep them safer. But China did this in a really stark way and in a really successful way for the most part. So you already mentioned that views on privacy have begun to change after the pandemic, or rather with the protests about zero COVID that actually broke out in Xinjiang, like the area that is the most dystopian in terms of the surveillance state was pretty much ground zero for the widespread protests that happened in China. How have ideas about privacy changed since those protests? Yeah, so the story of the protest really is just <laughs> remarkable, right? I mean, it's, you know, when you think about it, the fact that it started in Xinjiang, I mean, it's perfect in a way. You know, essentially what the story is, is that the government overstepped, right? It took it too far. And, you know, we kind of have to wind it back a little bit, right? Because for the first year of the pandemic, the government was actually really successful using surveillance to control, you know, a really potentially disruptive event, right? I mean, they managed to essentially rid the country of COVID, you know, after that first outbreak from Wuhan, they locked it down. And life in China was basically normal for most of the first year of the pandemic. Uh, and so at that point, everyone was very happy with the surveillance. They thought, this is great. I mean, they're looking at everywhere else in the world. They're looking at the US, Europe, people are dying left and right. They're thinking, wow, our system is the best system. And then Omicron arrived. And because Omicron spread so quickly, so much faster than the original strain of the virus, the surveillance system couldn't keep up, basically. right? And so in order to keep things under control, the government had to turn the focus of the surveillance system from the virus to people. It started basically instituting lockdowns. It couldn't do this sort of fine grain control anymore, right? It had just to lock down entire cities. You saw this really dramatically in Shanghai, where people were stuck in their homes and they couldn't get enough food and they were freaking out. And this is one of the wealthiest cities in China, but it was in other cities as well. And, you know, I think this was a moment where you had people in China who up to that point had only really experienced the benefits of state surveillance. You know, if you live in a city like Shanghai, Mostly state surveillance makes your life easy, right? It's like you can scan your face to like do banking or to like get into an apartment building or, you know, everything is sort of algorithmically arranged to make your life really smooth. And you just scan a QR code to buy everything like that's been it's a sort of digital utopia. But now for the first time, you have huge numbers of wealthy Chinese Han Chinese people experiencing the hard edge of state surveillance and they didn't like it. And, you know, that went on for several months afterwards. But I think that was a, a real turning point where people started to have really, really serious second thoughts about the system and its downsides. And eventually it kind of came to a breaking point. And that was sort of the end of last year, there was this fire in Xinjiang and Urumqi in the capital of, of Xinjiang, and a bunch of people died. And the suspicion was that partly those people died because there were so many COVID-related barriers put up that people couldn't get out and fire trucks couldn't get in. And so people blamed, you know, rightly or wrongly, I mean, I think we still haven't fully determined exactly why that happened, but the main point is that public perception was that this was because of COVID control, zero COVID. 
And suddenly you had this outpouring of sympathy with Uyghurs in Xinjiang among Chinese people, which is just remarkable. If you spend any time in China, you know that the discrimination against Uyghurs is deep seated. And here was an instance in which people all over the country were holding candlelight vigils for Uyghurs and identifying with them, right? Suddenly, you know, there was all this doubt, like you said at the beginning, it's hard to believe what was happening in Xinjiang. Most Chinese people didn't believe, but now they do. A lot of them do. It's just stunning. Uh, and so the result of that was that, you know, those candlelight vigils kind of grew into these huge protests, which in contemporary China is just unimaginable. You know, you just don't see nationwide protests like this. I mean, hundreds of people in different places and, you know, maybe hundreds of people might not sound like a lot, but in China, that's immense. And it was really, really shocking. And it did help sort of catalyze the end of zero COVID in China. So COVID is over and the Communist Party is really trying to get back to normal life. And they're like, oh, it's over. We handled it really well. It was great. And now we're moving on. But there is a lot of lingering resentment and a lot of broken trust in cities in China. We'll have to see how that plays out. But I think it's incredibly significant. So when I think about the surveillance technology in China, my mind immediately drifts to artificial intelligence technology. I just immediately assume that all of it involves artificial intelligence, even when it doesn't. It's just kind of baked into the conversations that we're having these days. How much of a role does artificial intelligence really play in the surveillance state in China? Yeah, you know, that's one of these questions, especially now. I mean, everyone's talking about chat GPT and AI is having yet another moment. I mean, I think one of the things that has come out of that whole conversation, which is really interesting, is the FTC uh, in the U.S. came out with a warning to advertisers not to oversell the abilities and the prevalence of AI. And that's one of those things that when you talk about AI, it's like, what does that even mean? AI has been around for decades and spam filters in your email are basically AI. So when you talk about surveillance in China, that tendency sort of is magnified, right? Because it's China, right? And it's this kind of faraway land that's sort of mysterious and hard to perceive. So the answer is that it is quite heavily involved in the surveillance state, but not all of it, right? So, you know, for example, in Xinjiang, the way that they are collecting information and categorizing Uyghurs and deciding who goes to the camps, part of that is being done by AI, but part of that is just being done by people. And the platforms that are used to collect data, they use what's known as data fusion. So the major sort of technological innovation if you want to call it that, in Xinjiang is this platform that they've built. It was originally designed for the military that can suck in all kinds of different sorts of data and be used to sort of compare data really quickly. That's not using AI necessarily. It's just a way of collecting and analyzing data. But they do use AI in a lot of the cameras, for example. And China is a world leader in what's known as computer vision, right? So this is stuff like facial recognition, the ability of computers to sort of scan an image or video footage and identify what's in it. China is extremely good at facial recognition. They have gait recognition, right? So they can recognize people by the way they walk. They say they can even recognize people now with masks on as a result of the pandemic. That's an AI application that China is very good at and is doubling down on. But there's also AI sort of being used to predict things like traffic patterns and manage traffic, manage and analyze like, you know, mundane things like the way utilities are used or how like you know, national health insurance is managed. I mean, it's kind of boring stuff, but meaningful for governments. One of the more dramatic uses of this was in the city of Hangzhou, which is a kind of tech hub in Eastern China where they have so many cameras around the city. They have what's known as a city brain. 
right? Which was developed by the company Alibaba. Some people may have heard of it, big e-commerce company, which is based in Hangzhou. And CityBrain is a sort of data fusion platform, but it does run on AI, right? So it sucks in all sorts of data from around the country, including cameras that basically kind of track every car in the city and optimize traffic. But then they also have this system that if an ambulance is picking someone up and they need to get to the hospital quickly, the ambulance can flip on a system that will direct traffic in a way that will clear the roads so that that ambulance can get straight to the hospital. So in some cases, life and death uh, applications that are actually interesting. You can see how they could make life better. And I think up until the pandemic, that is mostly what people were paying attention to. You mentioned that the FTC was asking corporations not to oversell AI. Does China oversell their use of artificial intelligence as a kind of way to control society and to give the impression that they're able to do more than they actually can do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is one of these moments as a journalist where something that starts out being a problem actually shows you a kind of even more interesting truth. So, like, you know, we started out reporting this book and there were all these stories in the state media about facial recognition being used to find long lost children and reunite them with their parents or do all these other kind of magical things. And we kept looking into them and a bunch of them turned out to just be BS, you know, or like at least exaggerated, if not outright fabricated. And we were just like, God, this is so frustrating. Like maybe there's nothing to it. And so for a while, we were really frustrated because we were looking for examples for our book. And then we realized that state surveillance is as much a propaganda exercise as a technological undertaking in a lot of ways. I mean, I will say in Xinjiang, in a lot of places that the tech does work and it is real and it has real impacts on people. But there's this other element of it that comes through in the media where you see them wildly exaggerating what this technology can do. And the point is to make people feel like they're being watched in ways that they maybe aren't. Because the idea is you don't actually need to be able to see everything. As long as you can persuade people that you can, that will lead them to modify their behavior. And I mean, this is an old idea. This goes back to the very sort of beginning of the notions of state surveillance, this idea of the panopticon, right? For people who've heard of this idea, the circular prison that was designed by a British sociologist named Jeremy Bentham, who actually stole the idea from his brother, which is, you know, this prison that is circular and it has a turret in the middle. And it's arranged so that prisoners never know when they're being watched. There's like a security guard in the middle and he can be sort of keeping an eye. Of course, he can't watch everyone all the time, but prisoners don't know. They can't see when they're being watched. So they just assume that they are. That really is in operation in China. The Chinese government constantly talks about how great its systems are. And, you know, people believe it. You mentioned that in Xinjiang, that the technology really works. But in a lot of ways, the fact that they have the internment camps is actually proof of its own limitations. Because you would have a much more targeted approach if the surveillance was as pervasive as they want you to believe it is. I mean, one of the scary things about Xinjiang is that it wasn't targeted at all. I mean, it was starting to get to the point that almost everybody in that community was being sent into these internment camps. I mean, I think that's almost evidence of the fact that there's enormous limitations as to how much they can actually watch and surveil different people even when they want to. No, that's true. We shouldn't exaggerate the extent to which they can control and track people. There are definitely limitations. And, you know, I think what the story of China has shown is that at this point, it is much easier to use technology as a stick than as a carrot because, you know, you can use it to control and sort of terrorize people quite easily. But to like do that really fine work of truly understanding the behavior of an individual and sort of trying to guide it and mold it and nudge it in certain ways, that is still 
very difficult. And we probably still don't have the technology or the data to do that yet. It's a much easier thing to sort of roughly track a population, figure out who the troublemakers are and shove them off into an internment camp, you know, lockdown cities, that sort of thing. That level they can do. But that is still really useful for the Communist Party and really, really powerful. And I think it's one reason that, you know, even after the protests over COVID, you even had people calling for Xi Jinping to step down, right? I mean, there's clearly huge amounts of anxiety and anger and skepticism in China about the Communist Party's rule. You know, the party just doesn't feel like it's in danger of ever losing its grip because even if these surveillance tools aren't as precise as maybe the party wants them to be, they're still immensely powerful. So China often says that it's not trying to export its regime model. It's not trying to export its form of governance to other countries to replicate, but they are exporting the surveillance technologies that they develop, design and manufacture. Is the surveillance state the future of governance for many other countries beyond China? Yeah, you know, it's funny when you raise that question, it reminded me of the really interesting interview you did with Elizabeth Economy, you know, talking about whether China is trying to export its model. I mean, I think she's right in the sense that China may not be trying to export its model wholesale, but it is exporting pieces of it. And essentially, you definitely see this in the case of surveillance technology and that the way that they make sales to other countries is by bringing police from those countries over to China and taking them to the Ministry of Public Security building off of Tiananmen Square and showing them how it works. This idea of Chinese-style control is part of the sales pitch for these technologies. You know, in reality, I don't think there's probably any other country that could plausibly build something like a Chinese surveillance state because China just has advantages that other countries don't, right? It has a huge population that generates a lot of data. It has good centralized systems for collecting that data. It has good technology. It has money. It has a large and competent bureaucracy that can use those systems. Like that just doesn't exist in a lot of countries. But in some ways, that doesn't matter. I think China's aim is to sort of not necessarily replicate itself in other countries, but to alter the norms globally so that it is okay for governments to use these technologies in whatever way they see fit. It's similar to the way they approach the internet. They don't necessarily say that everyone should censor the internet the way they do, but that every government should have the right to censor the internet if they want to and in whatever way they want to, right? So it's a similar idea. They have really been successful at selling this technology. I mean, the most recent sort of independent data we have is a little bit old now. It's from 2020, compiled by a scholar at the University of Texas named Sheena Greitens. But she found that in 2020, China had exported state surveillance systems. So systems basically being sold to governments and police to 80 countries worldwide, including a a bunch of democracies and some police departments in Western Europe even. So the technologies are out there. And even if they're not Chinese technologies, I mean, this type of technology is all over the United States. NYPD, LAPD, police departments everywhere are experimenting with and using this technology. So even if it's not necessarily a Chinese form of state surveillance, state surveillance is spreading. The main reason we wrote this book wasn't actually to criticize China. It was so that people who live in democracies can understand what is happening in China and use that knowledge and apply it to what's happening in their own countries. So, you know, in the United States, we do have authorities trying to use facial recognition to track people who are participating in protests. You're starting to see this in particular in the U.S. around the issue of abortion, because now you have states that have banned abortion and police in those states are going to companies like Google and asking for data about people who are searching for abortions or asking for location data of people who might have gone to abortion clinics. 
right? And you can imagine the same thing happening if the US were to suddenly pass strict gun legislation. You could have police doing the same thing to try to find people who are buying guns illegally, that sort of thing. So it's not hypothetical. These are real questions for democracies, particularly in the US, we really haven't started to wrestle with. The US doesn't even have privacy law. There's no overarching privacy law in the United States. The closest we have is a constitutional guarantee against unreasonable search and seizure. That's it. But that's a very limited right. So I think one of the major hopes we have with this book is it will sort of help stimulate that discussion. Well, I definitely think that it has. It's definitely a book that I hear people talking about. A lot of people that I know have read the book. So I think it's a great read. I definitely recommend it. Once again, the title of the book is Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. It's written not just by Josh, but also by uh, Lisa Lin, who was the co-writer on that. Thank you so much, Josh, for writing it. Thank you so much for joining me to talk to me today. Really, really appreciate it, Justin. This was a great conversation. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.